so far we've looked at David's uh, life in these two two books, really one book, first or Samuel, but it's split up into two books in our, our Bibles, first and second Samuel. And really, when you stop and think about it, David's done everything. We've observed the journey of David's life. Um, we've seen him uh, revealed as a shepherd. We've seen him revealed as a soldier, as a uh, sovereign king. Um, as a singer, and even as a sinner. And um, he's been known as the son of Jesse. He's been known as David the king. He's been known as a man after God's own heart. Um, he's also known as the, the sweet psalmist of Israel. But now his life is basically coming to an end, not to spoil, any, spoil anything, but if you look at the heading of the next chapter, the last words of David, it kind of gives you a little hint of what's going to happen. And so uh, the shadows, you might say, are growing long for David, and um, he's begun to take, life has probably begun to take its toll. He's lived a full life. And in the last chapter, first or Second Samuel 21, we saw where he went out to battle, and uh, he was in verses uh, 15 to... I think it was 15 to 17. Uh, he was almost um, uh, killed. and So he's, he's getting to the end here. And uh, I think the battle days are over for, for this king. And he's knowing he's coming to the end of his, his life. And uh, he began to reflect back, as many people do at this point in time in their lives. And he's really achieved uh, a lot of greatness. He's the mighty king ruling a great kingdom of Israel. Um, at this time, his kingdom's at peace. God has given a victory over his, his enemies. And it says there in verse 1, and, and David spoke to the Lord words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So all that's behind him now. And um, if you read, if you look over at Psalm 18, it's the same uh, there's a couple of words different, but for the most part, uh, it's it's the same same song. It's the same psalm, and um, some scholars believe that this was the last song written by David. Um, so this is a, a psalm in his old age. It's a song of joy. It's a song of victory. As we read through it together in praise, and uh, it's really written at the close of a of a race. You could say well run. And so we see here tonight his thanksgiving for being saved from his enemies in the first 32 verses here. And first of all, we see him declare um, God's protection. And he speaks of his personal relationship with God. He says there in verse 2, he says, the Lord is my rock. If you just go through and circle every time he says my, (laughs) it's kind of obvious that he has a personal relationship with the Lord. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Um, sometimes people ask, why is God described as a rock? Because a rock is something that's solid. We're not talking about a pebble. We're not talking about a stone that can be kicked around. We're not talking about something that can, um, you know, be worn away. It's, it's a solid fixture is, is the idea. And the same thing with a fortress, my fortress. It's something that speaks of uh, solidity. It speaks of um, strength. And then he says, my deliverer, this is the God who delivered him, this Lord of all these things. And you think of all the things that David's been through. I mean, lions and bears and I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, his life was in question several times when he was being chased around by Saul or by his enemies or by kings. And it seemed that God always came through in the end. God always persisted. God always protected uh, David, and that's what he's talking about here. He speaks of that language of God, his protector. He says in verse 3, My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's really pointing out here, um, you know, ten times I think in these two verses, David uses that word, me or my. And he's talking about the relationship that he has with his Lord. And... David 
didn't just know about God, as many people do today. He knew God. He knew him. And uh, he did not kind of rely on other people telling him about God. He knew God for himself. And that's what's really required of all of us, isn't it? Uh, David's use of these words, my and me, kind of you, you think of, of, of somebody who is really a, a small child. When you hear a small child talk, that's one of the first things they learn to say is mine or me or my. You know, they just want stuff. Um, and David seems to have this childlike love, really, this relationship with the Lord. And uh, in Psalm 118, verse 1, he adds this statement, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. So the word love in that verse, in Psalm uh, 18, um, means love deeply, not some superficial love. It's uh, a love that is built on mercy. It's built on compassion. It's really used of a, of a love of a mother for her child or her baby. It carries the idea of kind of a hugging or snuggling with, with your child. And it's really the image of, of a mother cuddling with her newborn baby. And that's the kind of relationship that David really felt he had with the Lord. And, and David is really saying here, here is my God and I want to hold him as close as I can to my heart because he's my protector. Uh, he also called in verse 3 there, he says, not only my stronghold and my refuge, but he says, my Savior, you save me from violence. And that was really David's story throughout his whole <laughs> career uh, from shepherd boy onward. I mean, uh, you know, violence awaited him on every corner, and yet the Lord continued to protect him, continued to save him. Uh, and then in verse 4, he cries out, he says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Worthy to be praised. Um, sometimes we think of God's worthiness, and it's really his worthship. It's, it's something that, you know, uh, we, we put a, a value to. Uh, and I think it's important that we realize that God, that David thought that, that, that God was worth uh, worshiping was worth praising and you got to stop and you just have to ask at this point do I have that kind of relationship with the Lord do I know about the Lord or do I know the Lord um, and you kind of have to humble yourself as a child um, and cling to him by faith and you know that's that's really what the Lord wants us to do can we say that he's truly my Lord uh, that he saves me and, and all those other personal pronouns he uses there. And then in, in verse 5, he talks about what he's protected from, for the, from, not only from the enemies, for the waves of death encompassed me. Um, the torrents of destruction assailed me. In other words, he, he's really pointing out that there was no way out of the times that David's life was at, at risk here. Uh, there was no way out. If it wasn't been for the Lord... He, he would have been dead a long time ago. And this just goes back to the purpose and plan of God, right? I mean, and you see it, you know, David is a kind of a picture of, of Christ in the Old Testament, and, and it's through his line that Christ came. And even in the New Testament, you see, you know, what if, what if um, you know, Herod would have been successful in killing all the babies, including Jesus? You know, I mean, all these times that, that Christ, what if Christ would have been tempted by the devil? And, you know, you think of all these things where he was faced with all these trials, tempted in the same way we are, and yet without sin. And at any time, this plan could have been thwarted. But it should give us um, comfort to realize that, no, this was God's, plan this was God's purpose and it was God who was protecting David and he tells us that God is our stability he talks about God being the rock he called calls him shield our safety fortress um, <clears throat> salvation or security uh, he even talks about God being a high tower refuge you know all those words are, are words of of are protective in nature and the reason he needed protection, because all this stuff was going around him all of his life. And he probably saw God's firm hand behind it all. Even to the point where it says, the cords of Sheol entangle me. 
In other words, at times, he felt like he couldn't even get out of this in, in entanglement that was, that was bringing him down to death. And that's really what, what the understanding there is, is, is that it's, it's, it's so important, I think, that you know, we realize that no matter what we face in this life, especially as God's children, especially as believers, that well, we don't have to fret about it. We don't have to um, be anxious about it because we're in the, in the palm of God Almighty. We are his children. He is our father. He is our protector. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our deliverer. He is our salvation, stronghold, and refuge. And just like he did this for David, he does it for us, probably on a daily basis. And he says in verse 7, in my distress, and this is why he can say this, he says, in my distress, what did he do? Did he worry? Did he fret? No, what did he do? It says he called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice and heard my, and my cry came to his ears. You know, it's, it's one thing to cry out to God and not know if that cry is ever going to be answered or if that cry is ever going to be heard. That wasn't even a question in David's mind. When trouble came into David's life, first thing he did, and we see it over and over again, is in his distress, he cried out to the Lord. He called upon the Lord. And the Lord heard his cry. Sounds like a song. <laughs> and, and, and delivered him, right? And, and so there were many times, I think, in David's life when the gates of the cities of men were closed off to him. He couldn't, you know, access that any longer. There were times when he could not go into Jerusalem. He couldn't run to the tabernacle. But even then, the, the, those times when all that, that privilege was, was closed off to him and he had no hope at all, I think he still went to the Lord. And I think that there in the very throne room of God, he heard his cry. And when he lifted his cry to God, God heard him and moved in power to help him. And that's the kind of blessing that we have as Christians, that we can cry out that his ears are ever open to our cry. Um, it, it never ceases. And that's a kind of an important um, thing to, to realize. In, in Jeremiah, I think it's 33. Let me see here, Jeremiah 33. Yeah, Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. And, you know, this is a, a promise from the Lord himself. And if we just could kind of understand that, that God desires us to come to him in prayer. You know, that God desires us to, to trust him with all these things. He invites us to flee to him in times of trouble, in times of torment. You know, and when we do, we'll find all that David found there and uh, even more. And so we see where he cries out to God for his protection. But then he comments on God's power in verses 8 through 16. Um, you know, you think of, of the, the song uh, Amazing Grace when it says... What's the one phrase where it says, uh, through uh, troubles and toils and snares, I have already come? That's, that's what David is saying here. He's kind of giving us a glimpse of his life in, a, in, a, in a, a snapshot. And he's saying, look, I have been in situations that you, you, won't even, you couldn't even believe. And yet I've seen the faithfulness of God. And so he goes in all this detail here in verses 8 through 20 about this not just a personal relationship, but really a profound relationship he had with the Lord. And here he begins to talk about the power of God. He says, the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of heaven trembled and quaked. Why? Because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He's really speaking here of the awesome power and holiness 
of God. He says he, he, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. And, and what he's saying here, he's destri- describing really this relationship, profound relationship that he had with God. And God basically did all this for him. Uh, it says in verse 11, he rode on a, ch- a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water out of the brightness before him coals of fire flame forth the lord thundered from heaven the most high uttered his voice and he sent out arrows and scattered them lightning and routed them then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the lord at the blast of his breath the blast of the breath of his nostrils I mean, talk about a powerful statement. Uh, yeah, it sounds like something that, you know, you wouldn't want to run into. And, you know, when you look throughout the Old Testament, you see a lot of this kind of verbiage describing God. And it really speaks to his power. It speaks to his holiness. And, you know, it's people like, the three Hebrew boys, Elijah and the widow, the 5,000, the disciples on the boat, all those people had that kind of relationship with the Lord where they, they saw that he overcame the natural with the supernatural, with the divine power, and intervened somehow in their lives. And I'm sure that we, if we went around the room, we could all say, wow, that, you know, that doesn't happen often, but it, it happened to me in this situation, or it happened to me in this situation in life. You know, sometimes we get to see God kind of pulls the curtain back and says, just let me show you what I can do. <laughs> you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we don't get to give credit to God for all that he does because sometimes we don't realize all he does. And I think sometimes he makes it so obvious we can't deny it. And so, you know, what he's speaking of here is he's just blown away at the thought that somehow the God of the universe, the very creator, would condescend himself, bring himself down to bless us to protect us, to watch us. And he does that because he takes pleasure in us. Um, It's enjoyable for him. Uh, I mean, can you imagine God taking pleasure in us? A bunch of sinners, you know, that, I mean, that God would work on my behalf on anything, Um, whether it's moving mountains or meeting my needs or working things out. Uh, Why? Just because he, he wants to. He wants to bless us. Um, that's something to shout about. That's something to sing about. And that's what David is doing here. He's just blown away that God's power was made personal to him in this profound relationship that he had with him. And then he talks about the provision of God in verses 17 to 25. He says, He sent from on high. He took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. And what's, what's David saying here? As, as mighty a warrior as he was, he, he's realizing, he knows, he understands completely that without God on his side, he's absolutely nothing. And that's why we should never take credit or you know, think of ourselves of more than what we should. Because if it wasn't for the Lord, none of us would be much of anything, at least eternally. And so he says here, they were too mighty for me. Verse 19, they, can, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Once again, he turns back his heart, his mind to the Lord. And then he says something kind of interesting here in verses 20 and 21. He says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And, you know, if you're ever in a, a, a tight situation or a stressful situation or maybe just a bunch of calamity comes your way or, uh, you know, trials, tribulations, whatever it might be, the one thing you don't feel, you don't feel like you're in a broad place at that time. You don't feel like you just lay down. You, you feel constricted because you feel like everything is pushing in around you. You know, I was just reflecting the other day just on the last several months. You know, the springtime just it seems like one thing after the other. 
And it's like, you know, during those times, you feel constrained. You feel like you just can't catch a break almost. And yet, when you're in that kind of situation, you, you feel anything but, okay, let's pull up a lawn chair and just kind of relax here in the sun. You feel like running. You feel like hiding. You feel maybe depression sets in, whatever it might be. And that's what he's kind of explaining here is that by God's protection and his power, he provided this peace. And, you know, that's part of God's provision for us as believers. He provides the peace of God through his provision of deliverance of us in various situations. I mean, ultimately, deliverance of our, for our salvation, that should give us peace. The Bible speaks of a peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, why? Because, you know, it's, it's, we know that he's guarding our hearts, that he's overseeing all of our affairs. It's not just left a random chance. Um, there wouldn't be much to delight in that if, if that was the case. There wouldn't be much to be peaceful about if it was just random chance. But he says he rescued me. Why? Because he del- delighted in me. You know, uh, God um, provides this peace through deliverance, but he also provides this peace through verse 21 says, The Lord dealt with me according to what? My righteousness. Uh, the Lord provides peace to those who are righteous. And he says, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Now, when you read that, you're, you're probably thinking, now, wait a minute, is this the same David? <laughs> wait, wait, does he have a short memory? What's he doing here? You know, what's going on? Is he rewriting history? Uh, is this the same guy that, you know, looked out his, over his window and that whole thing, and then had the murder, and then, oh, I mean, is this the same guy? And see, this isn't the, you know, growing up in the Catholic Church, you very much feel like your righteousness depends on your goodness. You know, your righteousness depends on what you do for the Lord or what you do for the church. You know, if you go and you ask the priest, well, you know, what can I do to please God more? Well, just come to more masses, you know, just do this, do And they just pile this stuff on you. And you really grow up under kind of a thumb of guilt, a, a big weight of guilt, thinking you'll never really live up to whatever the church wants for you. And so that's how they, unfortunately, that's how a lot of world religions keep you under their thumb. Is, you know, there's always one more thing that, uh, that you have to do. There's one more list of things. There's one more lev- level of spirituality. There's, there's another class you've got to go through. Then, you know, if you just go through this, if you just do this, if you just, you know, and, and, and David understands that's not the way he's using these terms here. This isn't what he's talking about. He says, the Lord dealt with me. He delighted in me. Why? According to my righteousness. Now, you have to ask the question, where does this righteousness come from? You know, Righteousness is what? Standing right before God is a simple definition. A right standing before God. You could say it's living a, a um, life of morality that measure up, measures up to the righteousness that God demands. Okay? Um, but how do we obtain this righteousness? Because David was anything but righteous in and of himself. Just like the Bible says, right? For there is what? None righteous. No, not one. And yet, he's saying that God dealt with him according to his righteousness. And so when you think of righteousness, you also have to think of what? You have to think of the other term, justification. Because that's where our righteousness comes from. The idea that God just looks down and says, oh, how righteous that person is. Um, it, It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, and, and that's where it's an important thing to understand that our righteousness doesn't come from uh, ourselves, right? It comes from Christ. It comes from God. And so when we, we speak of, of being, uh, being righteous, we have to understand that the only reason we're righteous is because of what? 
because of God's declaring us righteous, justifying us righteous before his sight because of the work of Christ. Um, And that's where uh, I think that it's important to understand that when we when we think of of that that righteousness, you have to ask the question: Well, how do we obtain that? How do we uh, get that? If you look at Second um, Peter, Second Peter two four. So he says here, uh, he's speaking of, of false prophets and, and teachers, but in verse 4 he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the, the, the uh, judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his uh, righteous soul over their lawless deeds, he saw and he heard, then the Lord knows to rescue the godly ones from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so when you, when you think of the righteousness of God, he's not declaring Lot righteous, right, in and of himself. He couldn't do that because that would go against Scripture. But what he's doing is he's saying that these individuals had a faith in, in God. They knew that they needed a Savior. Now, you know, you can't say they were Christians in the sense in the Old Testament because, um, but they were, they were saved. They, they realized that God needed to send a Messiah. They understood that. They stopped trusting in themselves and they trusted themselves into the hands of God. And that's what David is, is trying to point out here is this, this righteousness is not my own. It's not intrinsic in myself. It comes from God. And so he says, according to my righteousness, which comes from God, according to the cleanness of my hands, he awarded me. And there is a, a, a hint of, you know, there is an expectation of you to live a righteous life. You know, there's people today in the church that kind of the free grace crowd that says, well, it doesn't matter how you live, just go do whatever you want because all your sins are forgiven and you live under grace and, you know, you're declared righteous. So it doesn't matter what you do. Well, yes, it does. You know, that doesn't give you license for sin. You know, we still have to walk circumspectly before the Lord. We, we have to be careful how we live our lives because we want to live up to that righteous standard for which he's called us. Um, and he expects us to do that. And that's what he says here in verse 22. He says, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. It's interesting that he says that because we would tend to disagree if we look at his life. But you know what? He's just proving the scriptural point that all have sinned. David wasn't perfect. Nobody in the Bible was. And that's what's, other than Christ, and, and you know, what's interesting is when you look at somebody's life like David, I mean, he had so much going on in the positive. I mean, you know, in the goodness, and yet sin still crept in there. Uh, and so he's saying, you know what, in the end, I'm still here. I'm still standing before God, viewing myself as a righteous person because not of who I am, but because of who God is and what he's done in my life and how he's proved himself over and over and over again. Um, He says, for all his rules were before me. Rules gives indication of... Uh, a uh, 
something that needs to be followed, right? I mean, you can either follow a rule or you can break a rule. You can either be obedient to a rule or you can be disobedient to a rule. So he says, you know, all these things were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. In the long run, he realizes that, you know what, he may have faltered here and there, but see, it's one thing that to, to, to fall into sin in your life here and there, as we all do at times, but it's another thing to totally disregard, right, the righteousness of God and the rules that he has there and say, you know, I'm just going to go do my own thing. I don't even care anymore. You know, that, that would be a reprobate. That would be somebody who's obviously not saved. They're not converted. And so, you know, you have to be uh, careful that, you know, at times we want to judge people based on what they do at a given moment in time. And that's always dangerous because we don't know at what stage in their spiritual life they are. Is this just a, a, a sliver of their life where maybe they slipped into sin and they're going to get back on track? I mean, if we see them in that little sliver, we can say, well, that person's not a believer. <laughs> you know, it goes back to questioning people's motives and, and things like that. Now, on the long road, if you, if you look at somebody's life over the entirety of life and you see somebody who's just dead set against God and they've lived for themselves and very selfishly and they, you know, don't indicate that they love God, God's not their personal savior or whatever, then you can kind of, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, that person's probably not going to end up in heaven unless they have a change of heart, <laughs> unless God saves them. So you have to be kind of aware that, you know, we, we have to be careful when we kind of give um, sweeping statements that way. And so he knew that, that God had this sustaining relationship with him. Not just a saving relationship, but a sustaining relationship. And it was based on that righteousness that was imputed to David by God. Because he realized that, you know what, he couldn't do this on his own. And he says there in verse uh, 24, I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. I was blameless before him. All of us, if we've trusted in Christ, are blameless. That's why the Bible says there's what? No, no condemnation. Not, not any, zero. I mean, that's hard to understand, as wretched as we are. And, you know, we don't live the perfect Christian life every day. We just don't. But that's the blessing of being part of God's household. That's the blessing of being called his son or his daughter is that, you know what? He declares us righteous, therefore we're righteous. It's not based on what we do. And so we are therefore blameless before him. Um, He kept himself from guilt. You know, guilt's a funny thing. I mean, guilt is a good thing in a way, right? Because when we sin, we should feel what? Guilty. If you don't feel guilty when you sin, then you have to stop and you have to question, where's the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Where is my conscience? Where is anything? You know, people that don't have any sense of guilt for anything um, usually end up being locked up. (laughs) You know, they end up in prison. Why? Because they just don't care. They They don't treat people Uh, the way people should be treated. They don't care. If they steal something, they don't feel bad about it. If they kill somebody, so what? Um, And there's people like that. Their conscience is just seared. And yet here, David is saying, I've kept myself from guilt. And I think when David sinned, what did he do? He confessed his sin, right? See, and that's that, that cycle in the Christian's life. Um. Bill Bright used to call it spiritual breathing. You know, when you're walking with the Lord, the Spirit's in control, you're filled with the Spirit, everything's great, and then you sin. Well, the moment you sin, what happens? The Spirit's not in control of your life anymore. You're in control of your life. The flesh is in control of your life. So what do you have to do? You have to confess. You have to confess that sin. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's whatever. And you just confess it. You just tell the Lord, Lord, I just blew it. You say the same thing, the Lord, you don't give him excuses, you don't do whatever, you just confess it. And you thank him for your forgiveness as one of his children. And then he calls that exhaling, and then you inhale, you, 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 you yield back the proper authority in your life of the Holy Spirit. You ask the Spirit, you know what, my flesh just took over, I'm granting you control again. I don't want to do this again. And he called that spiritual breathing. And it, it should be something we do you know, every moment. It's not something you just do at the end of the day. And that's 
really what David is saying here. At the end of the day, I can lay my head on my pillow and not feel guilty about it. You know, I don't have to sit there and go through my day and, oh, man, I said that. I wish I wouldn't have said that. You know, I, have to, I didn't make that right. Or, you know, and you go make your little list. And, you know, until you take care of those things, it's still going to be there. But see, once you confess that sin and once you make that thing right with whoever, whatever, it should be done over. You know, it should be cast from your memory. And, and that's a supernatural thing, I think, that God does on our behalf. You know, you hear people say, well, you know, I forgive you, but I'll never forget. That's not biblical forgiveness. I'm sorry. I know sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. But you know what? I mean, I've, I've really honestly seen this supernaturally happen in my own life. I mean, you know, sometimes things happen or whatever, and, you know, and then years later, you're talking to the same person, and they'll bring, oh, remember when we, you know, did it? It's like, oh, I, yeah, I, now that you bring it up, yeah, I do remember it. You know, and all the feelings come back with it. But I didn't really, I wasn't really thinking about that, no. <laughs> See, and, and God sometimes just supernaturally steps in when we're willing to bring it to him and free us from all that. And so then he says here, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight, once again, not his own, but because God has granted that to him. Uh, verse uh, 26, he talks about the justice of God. He says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, uh, you make yourself seem tortuous. <laughs> so he's What's he showing? He's showing really the compassion here of the Lord. He's showing us that God is not some kind of a um, God that is detached from us. You know, uh, if we need mercy, it's there. If, if we need purity, it's there. He's, he's, he's saying he identifies with us. He understands what's going on. And he, he wants us to make sure that we understand that he says in verse 28 you save a humble people you know that's that's the 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 sin that will damn you to hell every time is pride the unwillingness to come before god and bend your knee and admit that you need what a savior um the kid in the pool that refuses to scream for the lifeguard's help is going to drown if he can't swim. I mean, it's just that's the way it is. You know, if he thinks he's too macho to make a big deal and draw attention, he thinks somehow he can do it himself, he's probably going to drown if the lifeguard doesn't know he's drowning. And so, you know, it says you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. And that's very biblical, right? God hates a prideful heart. And time and time again, we see how God has, what, humbled those prideful hearts throughout Scripture, even in, in the New Testament. You think of Peter. I'll never leave you. I'll never, you know, yeah, okay, Pete. Just, just hold on. You know, you'll, you'll understand when it happens. And so, you know, God carries this out perfectly. His justice is always carried out perfectly. And then he talks about the dependability of God here in verse 29. He says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. I mean, hopefully you'd agree we live in a dark world. We live in a dark age. I mean, just all the stuff that's going on, killing babies even when they're outside the womb. I mean, all the stuff. I mean, it's sick. I mean, you, can't, you, you couldn't think it would get any worse. I mean, you go back in time 10 years, so, wow, it's getting so bad. We would have never thought it would be this bad. But it's like it just keeps amping up. And it's good to know that God is our lamp. He's, he's, he's showing us the way. He's, he's clearing the path for us. He's our, our light in the darkness. He says, For by you I can run against a troop. 
and by my God I can leap over a wall. In other words, there's nothing really impossible for God to do through us um, if we're depending on Him. We can totally lay our lives right down in His hand. And He tells us why in verse 31 there. He says, this God, His way is what? Perfect. Perfect. Without error. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And so David wants us to understand that. He wants us to understand his protection, his power, his provision, his perfect justice, his proven dependability. And that's why he's thankful here. That's why he's crying out to God saying, wow, this is just amazing. And it's through those times of of trial that God has enabled, really, David to have victory over his enemy. I mean, it, it's happened time and time again because God had sustained him through every test. It wasn't David. It was God. Whether it was a lion, whether it was a bear, whether it was a giant, whether it was some crazy king that was after him, whether it was a soldier, whether it was one of his own sons, God had somehow allowed David to experience victory over every other obstacle he faced in his life. And we have that same relationship with God that David has. I mean, in times of temptation, what does God say in in 1 Corinthians? He tells us that he gives us strength to overcome. There's no temptation that sees us as common to man. God will provide a way out. In times of testing and trials, what does he do? He supports us with his presence. Um, Hebrews 13.5 tells us that. Ephesians 3.20 tells us that he supports us, he sustains us with his power. Um, He supplies us with his promises. Philippians 4.19. And so, I mean, aren't you glad that God is a God who not just saved us, but he's willing to sustain us in our salvation? I mean, it'd be a lost cause if he just saved us and didn't sustain us. Yeah, no relationships, just, yeah, okay, fine. Um, That's not the kind of God we serve. And so he shows us here clearly that he is saved from his enemies and he's thankful for that. And then in verse 39, 22, 39, or uh, uh, 33, excuse me, 32 there. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? Once again, that vivid imagery of God being a strong refuge. He says, this God is my my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. Um, He has made my feet like the, the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. So now he begins to talk about the the um, the abilities that he's had as a, as a warrior and as a king. Um, where did all this talent come from? It came from God. He says in verse 35, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Speaking of strength, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. I mean, think of that. Your gentleness made me great. Verse 37, you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. uh, slip. In other words, there's security there with the Lord, even though, you know, it may be a slippery path we're on or things are assailed from every every angle. um, We don't have to feel like we're pinned down because God's on our side. Verse 38, he talks about the strength to defeat his own foes. He says, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. You know, he's just stating the facts of his life. He's not having some glory party here. He's just saying, God, this is what you've done through me. And remember, the the enemies of David were not just the enemies of David. 
They were the enemies of who? They were enemies of God because God was, David was God's chosen leader. It's the same thing today in our modern society. The enemies of Israel are not just the enemies of Israel. They're the enemies of God. Why? Because Israel is God's chosen people. And that's why it's so important as a nation that we continue to support Israel. Um, politically, militarily, every way. Through our prayers. Because, you know, there, there is a promise in Scripture. You know, if you don't support Israel, God's not going to support you. And we've been teetering on that line for several years. Um, and now it's kind of been reasserted that our, our support is for Israel. But he says here in verse 40, For you equip me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. Now remember, David didn't win every single battle, right? I mean, he had some where hey, he didn't do things the right way and he lost. So he's saying here, he's not speaking of like a you know, perfect record kind of a deal. But what he's saying is, is that, you know what? God, you equip me to do the strength for each battle. And that's how our Christian lives should be looked at. You know, we shouldn't just leave here tonight saying, oh, all right, man, we're righteous in Christ and God's our sustainer. So, you know, whatever comes, who cares? You know, we're going to win the battle. Well, that may not necessarily be the case. (laughs) There may be some battles you lose. But that doesn't mean that God's not on your side. It's not that God's not allowing you maybe to go through that circumstance. You know, and see, that's a, a real difference between kind of the health and wealth theology of the modern day charismatic movement where you know, we're victors in Christ and nothing can touch us. And, you know, and then, you know, somebody in their family dies or, you know, <laughs> they get cancer or whatever. I mean, how do you, you know, how do they answer these questions? Because I mean, victory over everything. And yet when things that they say should not happen to anyone else happens to them, then they try to cover it up or they hide it or, well, that's an exception or whatever. Um, and, and that's, you know, the same thing here. David's not saying from cover to cover, you know, uh, any battle wasn't an issue. He's not saying that. He's saying God equipped me with his strength for each battle. And God will give you exactly what you need for each battle if you'll cry out to him. And he'll get you through it. That'll be what it, you want it to look like. But it will be what God wants. You made, me, you made those who rise against me sink under me. You know, the righteous God always exalts. Um, verse 41. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and, uh, and I destroyed them. The idea is they're, they're not running toward him. They're running away. <laughs> Right? They're chasing David, and all of a sudden, whoa, wait a minute, let's get out of here. Um, why? Because God was on his side. Verse uh, 42, they looked, but there was none to, saved, to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Why? Because they were his enemies. They were his enemies. You know, this really kind of speaks a profound biblical principle. You know, those who are not a friend of God, those who are not in a relationship with God in a personal way through Christ Jesus. Um, to be honest, I mean, they can pray till the cows come home. <laughs> you know, unless they're crying out for forgiveness, that's, that's the prayer that God will hear. But everything else, you know, I mean, sometimes I, you know, there's, there's people that just, they aren't even religious. You know, they're, they're, maybe they have some religion in their background, but they're not a practicing Christian or anything. And, and sometimes you meet uh, at, at my brother-in-law's funeral. I met a friend from uh, high school, and he's not a Christian, but we were good friends. And, and uh, we were talking about some fun we had in high school and everything. And he was saying, you know, at the end, you know, when he, when he left, he said, well, I'll be praying for you and your family. And I wanted to say, Why? <laughs> Who are you praying to? I mean, what, you know, but I mean, it sounds kind of pretentious to say something like that. So I didn't say it, but I just thought, okay, you don't, you don't even know God. You're, you're not even a, a believer. You're not, you know, you kind of belittle the whole faith thing. Why would you say something like that? But it, it makes them feel good. 
you know. Um, and so, you know, we have to be careful that we don't, um, you know, it's like when you have Mormons come to your house and, you know, engage them, you talk to them, and then they leave. And, you know, I've heard Christians say, well, God bless you. Why would you say that? I don't want God to bless them. <laughs> they're, they're not on the side of truth. I mean, you know, so you have to be careful. You have to be cautious with words that we use here. And that's what, what, what David is, is pointing out here is that, you know what, they, these people, they even got to a point where they, they cried out to the Lord, but you know what, he didn't answer them. He answered my prayer instead. Um, in verse 43, the result was, I beat them fine as dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You know, and once again, this isn't a, he's not here glorying in his war or whatever, but he's just stating the fact. This is what happens when you come against God. This is what, how it ends for you. It doesn't end well. You know, it may look like it's going to end well, but in the end, God has the last say. Um, he says in verse 44, you delivered me from strife with my people. Remember when all the issues were going on? Well, now all the issues are gone. I'm sure when all that was going on, David was like, oh, man, why did, why did you bring me back as king? I mean, you got all these hassles now. You got, you know, all this stuff going on. But now the strife is gone. God delivered him. You kept me as the head of the nations, peoples, uh, people whom I had not, who, who I had not known served me. All right. Out of respect for who he represented is the idea. It says foreigners came uh, uh, cringing to me as soon as they heard of me they obeyed me he had a certain respect why because he represented a god who demanded respect and reverence it wasn't just david but they knew the god the power that was behind david he says there in verse uh, 46 foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses and so this is miraculous stuff that was happening during his rule, during his reign. And if you've ever had a chance to, I got several videos on the, some of the wars that Israel's been through. I mean, it's miraculous. Some of these situations they got themselves into, not of their own doing. But I mean, you, you would think that Israel's going to be no more, no way. It's a ragtag army. And all of a sudden, God turns turns the whole thing around. And a week later, you know, the world is going, what just happened? <laughs> you know, we thought we finally got rid of this pest. But they're still there. And that's nothing. I mean, there's going to come a time when everybody is going to turn against Israel. And it's going to look like, boy, it's definitely game over now. And that's when the Lord returns and sets things in order. Not so fast. And you know, here he, he talks about his enemies losing heart. They came trembling out of their fortresses. In other words, they were just so blown away by the power that they saw behind the rule and reign of David representing God um, that they thought, why even put up a fight? <laughs> Doesn't make sense. Verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. This sounds like another song. And exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. So he begins here to kind of really offer worship to the Lord. Uh, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. You know, the, the Lord says, vengeance is whose? Vengeance is his, says the Lord. But sometimes we get to experience that vengeance. We get to see it play out if we just don't take it on ourselves. Verse 49, who brought me out of my enemies? You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. And I mean, if you just document that in David's life time and time and time again, it's over and over again. He's just continues to deliver David from his enemies. And you know what? Regardless of what we face in our own lives, um, you have to know that God is always leading you toward 
victory in your life. Ultimately, you will have victory over all these things. If you just hang in there, if you just continue down the path that God has for you. Um, it may lead you through weakness. It may lead you through possible defeat. It may lead you through discouragement. But it's still a pathway to victory because why? That's the path God wants you on. And he has a purpose for all those things. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this. Uh, I don't know if I remember reading this on Sunday or not, but 2 Corinthians 12. It says in verse 7, um, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the uh, surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pled, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. We don't know what this was. I mean, there's a lot of people speculate different things, but it, some kind of, it could have been some kind of ailment. It could have been an individual. We don't know. Um, but it says that uh, in verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made what? Perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, that's such an important principle that we need to comprehend because, you know what, when we are portrayed as weak, what do we want to do? We want to defend. We want to fight back. We want to, you know, and God's saying, no, I got your back. Don't worry about it. Don't even worry about it. Um, and he closes out here in verses 50 to 51 with kind of the God who secures, you might say. He says, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring. Notice that word at the end. Forever. Forever. Um, as many times as people came against David over and over and over again trying to take his throne, trying to defeat him, trying to kill him. It was all for naught because God was in control. God was in perfect control of all that. And we have that same hope. Um, I mean, you know, the good thing about God is he didn't just work yesterday for you and he's not just going to work today for you or tomorrow for you. I mean, He's working in the future for you. He's working completely for you. It doesn't matter what eternity brings into view. The saints of the Lord, the saints of God, are secure in their relationship with God. And that's clearly taught throughout Scripture. And when we enter into that kind of relationship with, with Him, it's for all eternity. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on, you know... Um, his, it's not even based on his faithfulness to us because he is faithful. He can't be anything but faithful. I mean, when you stop and think about it, when you're his child, there'll never come a day when God disowns you, ever. Um, no matter what, no matter what comes your way, you're in permanent arrangement with God. And so you stop and you say, well, no wonder David, I mean, wrote this psalm, this 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 chapter of, of praise here. Um, if we're saved by God's grace, we should be singing right along with David, I would think, I would assume. Um, you know, that's, that's so important uh, to understand that. And, you know, if we are saved, then we truly need to be that, that worshiper that God desires us to be. Um, like I said, next week we'll get into chapter 23 and it's, the headings there are the last words of David. So you really see how God has sustained him and how God is carrying out his purpose and his plan. You know, I, I heard uh, a debate. I forget who the debate was between. It was an atheist and a Christian debating. 
and uh, um, somebody asked, I think it went down this way, somebody asked the, the uh, atheist if you could give one uh, evidence for the existence of God, what would it be? And they said, the nation of Israel. <laughs> yeah, he said, we, I, I don't, we don't understand how, you know, it's just amazing. And it proves the, 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 the complete faithfulness of God. You know, and when we look at that and we look at that nation, then we relate it to us as the church that, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. Not because it's a great church, not because of who we are, but because it's his church. It's Christ's church. He cares for this church. And so we just need to kind of ride the waves as they come and trust God to carry us where he desires us to go and be faithful in the process. So.